This is Dr. Rob Harder with the Nonprofit Leadership Podcast, making your world better. What does it take to be an effective nonprofit leader today? What are the biggest challenges? What are the biggest obstacles? How should nonprofits fundraise in an economy that is constantly changing? All of these reasons combined led me to start this show. And it's my hope that through this series, people can learn not only what it takes to be an effective nonprofit organization, but to hear from effective leaders who are successfully making a positive impact in their communities. We hope you enjoy the show as together we hear how they are making their world better. Since COVID, recruiters across the country have felt the pressure of the great reshuffle, as it's been labeled, and are having to turn to their current networks to hire talent quickly. Well, unfortunately, in this process, for many recent college grads without the recruiter in or the right network, which too often means those from underrepresented communities, they have been left behind. More specifically, with Gen Z entering the workforce as the most diverse population ever in American history, it's even more vital that they receive the right kind of help and mentorship opportunities in order to find their next job. Well, my guest today is Kalani Leifer. Kalani started Co-op Careers. That's an organization, a nonprofit organization, that offers a program focused on digital skills and peer connections in order to help low-income and first-generation college graduates to overcome the barriers they face in order to find gainful employment. I think you're going to enjoy today's show. I also want to give a shout out and a thank you to each one of you who have written a review or given a shout out about the podcast. I actually, my podcast was recently labeled as the number one podcast for 2022. And it was just such an honor. Uh, it was so fun. I'm actually really surprised a bit, uh, but, but it really comes down to the great guests that we have and uh, the fact that you have supported it and continue to let people know about it. I just encourage you to continue to pass the word on about this podcast. There's some great insights. And if you haven't gone to our website yet, uh, there are a whole list of interviews I've had now for the last several years. Again, that's nonprofitleadershippodcast.org. Again, nonprofitleadershippodcast.org. All right, enjoy the show. Well, Kalani, it's great to have you on the show today. Your organization, Co-op Careers, has a mission to help low-income and first-generation college graduates get the requisite digital skills and peer connections, really, that they need to help overcome their unemployment. And I think particularly now, this is so important, you know, we're coming out of the COVID pandemic. And what you do, as I understand, if I read more about your work, is you help connect recent graduates with employers looking for motivated and prepared and diverse candidates. So let's set the stage for this conversation today. And I want to talk a bit about Gen Z and millennials, because that's a lot of who you end up working with, particularly Gen Z, as I understand it. From your viewpoint, give us your current assessment of the job market, and again, particularly for Gen Z. Well, Rob, thank you so much for having me. This is really exciting. So yeah, we do very much work with Gen Z now, but when we started in 2014, millennials were still coming out of college. And uh, I myself am a millennial. I, I graduated college in 2008 in the last great economic upheaval. And it's been really interesting to reflect on how attitudes towards the job market, what young folks are looking for in jobs has evolved as, as sort of the millennials have entered their 30s and and Gen Z are really the, the folks coming out of college and seeking jobs. And I think we'll talk a bit more about that later. But in terms of, of the market that they're entering, one thing that has never changed, in my opinion, is that the labor market is messy and competitive and, frankly, pretty nepotistic. And I know that's an intense word, but really what I mean by it is just a, a job market that's largely driven through informal relationships, non-professional relationships. 
family, friends, neighbors. You know, I think we like to think of the labor market as top down, as something that CEOs and college presidents are coming together and they're making big decisions. But what we found again and again, and I, I think this is both a source of the challenge, but also the solution, is that the labor market is, is grassroots. It's bottom up. It's a bunch of young recruiters and hiring managers with really big goals from their company coming down on them, a lot of pressure, a lot of time constraints. And I got to fill 10 roles in the next month. And the most natural thing for them to do in, in a bad labor market, but also in a frenzied labor market and a tight labor market where we are now, a fragile labor market, I'll say, is to ask your existing staff members, your existing colleagues for recommendations. Who do you know? Who do you trust? Whose resume should we put on the top of the pile? And that is what's happening on the ground. And I actually think there's something kind of beautiful about that. It, it makes a lot of sense and, and is still very compelling that in this digital economy, we are still making hiring decisions based on trust, based on relationships. And there's something I think quite compelling, quite human about that. So in some ways, I don't know that nepotism itself is the problem. I think it's human nature. The problem is in America, when you combine nepotism with really profound school segregation, neighborhood segregation, families are, you know, tend to be segregated in some way, that the people we know and trust tend to look a lot like ourselves. So if you are a, a recruiter or a hiring manager at a company that's predominantly white, predominantly privileged, and you go to your staff members and you ask for recommendations, they will, with good intention and enthusiasm, recommend some really good people they know. It's just that those people they know are, are also going to be white and privileged. And so that basic phenomenon of, of young employees recommending their friends and neighbors and schoolmates, when you repeat that 100 million times over, that's the labor market or the, the entry-level labor market. And so in good times and bad, I think that that basic force is at play. And as I hope we'll talk about that, that's also a lot of how co-op has come to operate, um, to really acknowledge that it's, yes, digital skills are important, but as you said, peer connections are the other key piece. And I think that's really where we've leaned in and I hope what makes us special. No, let's talk about that some more. Now, COVID led to this, some people are calling it the great reshuffle. Unfortunately, as you're getting to, this has disproportionately negatively impacted those from underrepresented communities. So talk a little bit more about that. Why has it been so difficult for those who come from these communities to find jobs? You've already mentioned the peer network is so critical, and that's a lot of it. What are the other barriers and challenges you found at co-op careers that have really caused more barriers, again, for those underrepresented communities? Yeah, this definitely feels like a unique and intense moment in the labor market. And I think the things I'm going to describe are, are sort of all too persistent. Let me emphasize again that relationships, peer relationships are what lead to entry-level jobs. And I think people in positions of power often went to four-year residential universities where they started freshman year and graduated four years later with the same set of people who they lived with in dorms and fraternities and sororities and went to class together and partied and studied and all this good stuff that we associate with college. And then very naturally graduate four years later with dozens and dozens, maybe even hundreds of people who are in their same position who they can turn to and ask for favors. And by the way, not just 
peers, but also near peers. You know, you're a sophomore and you're friends with seniors and lo and behold, they're on the labor market, in the labor market when you graduate and ready to take your resume and put it on top of the pile. And so the reason I'm emphasizing this is that is sort of this Hollywood sense of what a university experience looks like in America. And it's just not actually very common. Most Americans are going to transfer. They're going to start in community college, maybe transfer a second time, a third time. They're not going to be living in dorms or with friends. They're probably living at home, helping their family out with rent. They're commuting for hours every day. They're probably working in a part-time or potentially even a full-time job. They might be parents themselves, uh, caretakers in other ways. And they certainly will not start and finish in four years with the exact same set of people. And they won't be up until three in the morning talking about philosophy in their dorm room and making these really casual connections, which as I shared, end up being immensely important in the labor market. And so what I'm emphasizing here is that, and, and what we've learned through co-op is that, you know, we think of college graduation and the, the months and year after that as, as probably the high watermark of peer connection. Like that's the moment when you are most deeply ensconced in peer communities. And that's just not true. If you are the first in your family to go to college, you're not going to have people who are elders who can pull you into the labor market. There's also a really good chance that you went to a commuter college. And by the way, earn the exact same degree, have the exact same skills, actually have probably a whole lot more hustle than people went to more traditional residential colleges where the path of least resistance is often graduation. And so it's, it's quite common to graduate from a city university or a state university and, and not have dozens of friends and, and maybe not even have three or four who are going through that transition with you from education into the labor market who can provide that solidarity, and most importantly, give you perspective. So at co-op, often people, you know, they're a year, two years out of college, they've submitted hundreds of job applications online, never heard back, they go into the black hole of jobs or of applications. And it's very easy and I think very natural to conclude that you are broken, that there's something wrong with you as a candidate. You are a defective candidate. And your family around you who have, you know, supported you and made sacrifices for you to be the first to graduate and, and with so much promise and so much potential also don't understand what's going on. And so often when, when we get to co-op, we, we work in cohorts of 16 peers, they come together. And one of my favorite things about co-op is in the first few weeks, you sort of see people have this realization as they look around the table or around the Zoom box now and kind of have this realization like, oh, shoot, like he is so creative and she is so smart and they are such an ambitious hustler. And they're also unemployed. They're also underemployed. They're also working at Starbucks. They're also driving for Uber. And that realization that, like, oh, shoot, I'm not broken is so powerful. But then, of course, there's this sort of realization, okay, there's something much bigger here in the labor market that's broken. Maybe we can work together to address that. Yeah, no, I'm really glad you're going into this because I think you're so right. There's been a lot of changes about how people in general across the board are experiencing college. It's not that typical four-year liberal arts college or residential college, as you mentioned, or university. It is much more diverse. And I think COVID has made that even more the case where people are working part-time, commuting to their college, 
taking their time spreading out over six to seven years. I've read that as well. So I think that is very fascinating. I think it's changing how people are coming out of college and then going into the job market. It's also interesting, you point this out in your work there at Co-op Careers, that Gen Z is the most diverse population in American history. Now, how does this play into the current job market and unemployment issues? I know you've touched on a few things, but maybe you could talk a little bit more about the impact that the fact that uh, here we have the most diverse population ever going through American history right now. Yeah, I, I think it's a really exciting moment. First, let me say that. Um, and I think um, and it, it's fraught with challenges. And I think actually a lot of those challenges are are just being amplified now because this cohort, this this generation is so much more diverse that we can't, I hope, I, I don't think we ever should have, but we can't ignore the very, the increasingly common and and frustrating and isolating experience of underemployment among first-gen grads. It's no longer that it's, you know, 5 10% of grads that are having this experience. It's 40 50% of grads who are having a much less, quote-unquote, traditional college experience. And so I think the biggest way that this is impacting us, the diversity and size of this generation, is it's, it's forcing us to confront a lot of the challenges that were already in place. I would say that in some ways, we are wrestling with the results of our own success as a, as a society, right? If you go back to the 40s and 50s, or certainly before the GI Bill, the kinds of people who were getting bachelor's degrees looked a lot like me. They were white men. And they were having sort of this much more traditional residential experience I described. And then as a society, we were and still are tremendously successful at increasing the rates of college access and graduation. We've truly democratized access to the skills and the credentials. We have a lot more work to do. These city universities and state universities that I think are so essential, they have their work cut out for them to increase graduation rates. But overall, we should be immensely proud of uh, what we've done to democratize higher ed. What we haven't done in that time is democratize access to these peer connections, to, these, to, to social capital, basically. So it, it used to be, and these are all just my hypotheses, I, I haven't tested these empirically, but my sense is it used to be that if you had a bachelor's degree, that was a really strong correlation for the fact that you were white and male and privileged and had just spent four years hanging out with your friends. And then we look at that and we're like, well, okay, well, people with bachelor's degrees are successful. Therefore, it must be the, that the bachelor's degree led to that, right? There's this sort of correlation causation confusion. And my sense is that the same things that led those folks to earn a bachelor's degree is what led them to be successful. And that's that underlying privilege and social capital. And then we've dramatically increased access to the degree, thinking that the degree causes success, when in fact, I think it's this underlying stuff. It's the privilege and the social connection and the social capital. I guess what I'm trying to get at is we, in the last couple of generations, have done a lot of hard work, and most importantly, the young folks have done a lot of hard work to really change who is getting a bachelor's degree, but we haven't changed how you get jobs. And who gets jobs? And it's that is still so deeply reliant on those underlying factors like privilege, like access, like race that used to get guys like me good jobs. That's that force is still at play. Yeah, well said. And I love your passion 
to want to make a difference and really help these first-gen college students, and particularly those who are coming from these underrepresented communities. So I thought it'd be fun for my listeners. Tell us a little bit more about Co-op Careers. How did you get started? And, and what's the main mission here uh, beyond what we've already talked about so far? Yeah. How did, how did this dude get, get into this work? Get so excited. Well, so as I, as I mentioned at the top, I, I graduated in 2008, uh, right before the bottom fell out. And unlike a lot of folks who graduated 08, 09, I was, I was really fortunate to have a great job lined up as, as a high school history teacher in the Bronx. Uh, so I, I moved from California to New York, like two days after graduation, got like a month of training and, and then was a high school history teacher. And there's a, a, a few things I'd really want to share about that because that's, that's where my co-op journey begins. The first thing I'll share is that I, I was really lucky to be placed at a brand new public school that was just going into its second year. So they had a cohort of about 120 freshmen becoming sophomores and then bringing in the next cohort. And so this school, like we were inventing it as we went. We were a bunch of young 20s teachers, all new to the profession, <laughs> new to adulthood, and incredibly uh, inspiring principal. And we, we didn't have systems and processes in place. And yet that cohort of students really thrived. That first cohort is the class of 2011. And it was so clear to me that they were thriving, not because of me or, or the teachers having their act together or the school having its systems and processes together, but because of each other. And there was this palpable power that I felt in the classroom. And I felt it sometimes being used against me, of course, um, and, and sometimes felt like I could sort of get it on the right side and, and, and use it as a way to teach the lesson. And, and the, there was just this, this camaraderie and this solidarity amongst that first cohort and, and the subsequent cohorts as well. But, but particularly that group of 120, 95% of them graduated on time, 80% of them enrolled in college right away. This success was because of each other. And that was so clear to me. And I remember at a very impressionable age myself making note that like, okay, this power can be what gets young folks to college. It can be what leads to 95% graduation rate. Those are huge like societal goals that we have, and it's that power that's making it happen. So that's the first thing I wanted to share. I like it. No, it's a great story. Thank you. I, I, I clearly, these kids had a big impact on me. This cohort in particular had a huge impression on me. I love these students. Some of them are, are still the dearest people to me in my life. And I feel like I promised this group of students that if they worked hard and made good decisions, which to me was go to college and earn a bachelor's degree, if you beat the odds and you earn that degree, that'll be enough. It'll be enough to gain a foothold in the middle class. It'll be enough to achieve economic independence and stability. Nothing fancy. American dream stuff. And I certainly wasn't the only teacher and the only adult in the country making that promise. I, I think that's a basic social contract we have. And the statistics all bear it out, right? If you go to college, you're sort of 50% less likely to be unemployed. You're likely to earn 50% more over the course of your career. Like on average, going to college is absolutely the right thing to do. Problem, as I've learned over the last decade plus, is that we don't live average lives. We live very specific lives. And if Half the people are under that average. A lot of them are far under that average. And it's not a coincidence for whom, like, who, for whom college is working and, and for whom it, it's not working. And so, you know, I, I've just come to understand 
in many ways, I think the lived experience of young folks and not so young folks who did absolutely everything right, upheld their end of the bargain, earned a bachelor's degree, overcoming immense odds in doing so, and then are, are stuck in retail jobs and restaurant jobs and driving for Lyft and Uber. And there's no shame in any of these jobs, but it's certainly not why at least my former students worked their butts off and, you know, just navigated this incredibly challenging world of higher ed and work and commuting, all this other stuff. It's not why they did it. That's kind of the seed, right? Like that broken promise is sort of the challenge that we're trying to address at co-op. And, you know, but it wasn't all doom and gloom. They also showed me the how, what the solution would look like. That's great. Then these numbers may be a little bit off. I mean, in other words, they may be higher now, but I understand from your website that you've graduated over 900 participants and now have an alumni nearing 3,000. You're growing, you're expanding your services. I think uh, the latest expansion is in Chicago now. What are you hoping to achieve this year? And then maybe just look into the next three years. What's your plan here? How do you want to continue to expand this co-op careers organization? Yeah, you got that. We had 900 uh, grads just last year. And, and since 2014, we have 3,200. Maybe let me take one step back, though, and talk about what just one cohort looks like. In many ways, co-op, we have very big ambitions, but that will never change, I hope, the intimacy and, and the sense of smallness that one cohort experiences. This is a human challenge under employment. I think we have a really human-sized solution which is why I think it's worth growing this in the first place. So the basic way co-op works in, in 2014, we, we sort of stumbled on this. And there's a bunch of factors that went into this stumble. But basically what we do is we bring together a cohort of 16 peers. So first-gen low-income college grads in New York, primarily coming from City University of New York, California, coming primarily from California State University System. We're in the Bay Area and in Los Angeles. And, and as you mentioned, just started in Chicago, where we've got grads from University of Illinois, Chicago, and, and other local schools. And what we do is we bring 16 folks together every night for four months, Monday through Thursday. It's about 200 hours altogether. Um, that's what I had in mind when I started co-op. What I didn't know was that co-op would become an alumni-led organization. So in 2014, we started with one cohort. and. I was the coach along with two incredible volunteers, Francesca and Elise, if you're listening, um, who, who played a central role at the beginning of co-op. But we, we sort of, you know, we're a group of 20-something coaches and we had a cohort of 20-something students. And, you know, we did one cohort in fall 2014. We did a second in spring 2015 and then a third that summer. And what we realized was that our alumni were getting the kind of jobs that we really wanted them to get during the day. And then the evening when we ran our program, they just kind of kept coming by to hang out. And I was like, what are you, what are you doing here? <laughs> but basically this hunger for community, that doesn't go away, right? And actually getting the first job, it doesn't mean it's all smooth sailing there. And, and so they, they were coming for community. And you know, pretty quickly, I realized like, you, you all are really credible messengers. Like This thing worked for you. And you were literally in their seat six months ago, 12 months ago. You're doing the job during the day that, that our new cohorts are seeking. I don't, by the way. I don't, I'm not a digital marketer or a data analyst. And so by the end of our first year, we, we made this sort of really key decision to have each cohort. First, they had two cohort captains. 
and sort of served as as teaching assistants. And then we realized, well, maybe maybe if we added one more, they could teach all of the stuff. And so we did that three per cohort. And they were like, oh, that's a little too much. Let's add one more. And so by the end of our second year, the, the way co-op works is a, a cohort of 16 co-opers, we call them, underemployed college grads who, who did everything right, but are are seeking their first opportunity. And then four cohort captains uh, who lead the entire 200-hour program all at night on top of you know busy day jobs at ad agencies, tech firms, things like that. And so that's the basic unit of co-op. Well, your vision and your passion is very clear. And so you mentioned already that you are financially supported through philanthropy and, you know, sounds like individuals and foundations. Maybe you could talk a bit about when you first launched it, what was your fundraising model? And then now you're ready to scale it. Has your fundraising model changed? Maybe you could talk about that because a lot of nonprofit leaders that are listening, you know, they're either in the midst of starting an organization from scratch, kind of like you did a few years ago, or they're wanting to scale their nonprofit and really grow it. So maybe you could talk about both of those. Well, first, I can only speak to my one experience, uh, which has you know been un- unfolding over the last eight years or so. So I, I by no means think I have the answers here, but a, a few things about how we started. So we, we started with no money, no like nothing, right? Like when you you're making something up, and um, I I was re- you know I was a teacher at a couple other jobs in the industry, and and then I had the chance to work with with another nonprofit that had a yeah, great mission a lot of funding support to start and ended up, you know, sort of shutting its doors without ever taking off, without ever serving students. And that was a huge lesson to me in this notion that I mentioned before, of you have to start small and earn the right to exist. There's a lot of folks who think I was even one of them for a long time. I was like, yeah, well, of course I should start my own nonprofit. I have a great idea. You know, there's a clear need for what I want to do. And I just really came to understand that need does not equal demand. If you build it, they won't necessarily come. And no one's waiting for you, right? They, like, I think when we graduate from college, like, you know, there's always someone at graduation saying, the world is waiting for you. Nope, no one's waiting for you. And so re- really, you know, really having this mentality that I need to... So co-op has always been free to our participants. And that, that's something really important to me. But even that's not enough, right? You have to, like, if people are investing 200 hours of their time, our students, you need to earn every minute of that. And so this idea of starting small and earning the right to exist was really important. I'll also say, initially, my vision for co-op was as a two-year program, full-time. And I remember in 2014, running around New York that summer, really sweaty, just like trying to like bamboozle people with my energy and my vision and my idea. And they're like, look, that's nice. That's great. But like, you need some data before we're going to give you money. Totally fair. And I just became very clear to me, I couldn't have a two-year pilot program. I, I just didn't, I didn't even have enough money to like support myself that long. And, you know, so I was like, okay, I need, I need to figure out how to do this more quickly to, to have some proof of concept to go out there and tell our story, show our data. And so that's when we made this fateful decision, it turns out, to take what I thought needed to be a two-year full-time program that was going to be woven into an associate's degree at CUNY at the City University of New York. That was my idea, by the way, that no one said, we want that, we need that. But what I decided then to do was take this program that I thought really deserved two years, push it into four months, 
And one, so what has to give in order to make that possible? And, and so I made the decision then, rather than working with matriculated students before graduation um, and help them avoid underemployment, to actually work with college grads who had earned the bachelor's, who had held up their end of the bargain, who had you know, jumped through a lot more hurdles or jumped over a lot more hurdles, through a lot of hoops, to get to that graduation point and were already underemployed. And the thinking there was this group of students could do this program in four months. And they won't have all these other classes and obligations. And that's when we actually made this decision to work with folks when the problem that we were trying to address, underemployment, was already happening. We'll be right back. This episode is sponsored by Arts Midwest. They have launched a new podcast called Filling the Well. The Filling the Well podcast has been created to nourish, provoke, and inspire. Hear from creative changemakers as they share their takes on how to shift power, avoid burnout, build community, share resources, and advocate for support. You can visit artsmidwest.org slash filling the well. Again, that's artsmidwest.org slash filling the well. Hey, friends. Thanks so much for listening to the Nonprofit Leadership Podcast. If this is your first time listening to us, I want to make sure you're aware of a whole group of other episodes with fascinating guests that I previously interviewed. Just go to our website, nonprofitleadershippodcast.org. There you'll find numerous interviews of nonprofit leaders from all over the country and even from different countries, all trying to make their world better. I also want to encourage you to like, subscribe, and share this podcast with others. This will help us get this great content out to more nonprofit leaders just like you. Now, finally, if you want to get my monthly email update that contains more resources in addition to these episodes, it's really easy. Just go to my website at nonprofitleadershippodcast.org and simply type your email address in the top right-hand box and you'll be added to our monthly email update. And this way, you'll never miss any of the interviews or extra content from this show. And if you have any questions or comments, do not hesitate to email me. Thanks again for listening. Now back to the show. No, that's great. And you obviously have worked a lot with millennials and Gen Z population of um, students. Now, it's been interesting. I've had other people on the show talk about this, that this both Gen Z and millennials are looking for different things, I think, now when they look for jobs. We've talked a lot about the educational and the, uh, preparation for that. But when it comes to choosing, when they choose to join an organization, whether it be a for-profit or nonprofit, they're often choosing the culture of that organization. In fact, some studies have even shown that the culture is more important than simply the benefit package or the pay uh, when it comes to determining whether or not they'll select a certain uh, company or organization to work with. So in light of that, how do executive directors or CEOs create the right kind of culture for their organization? So now this is maybe shifting towards my listeners who are running these organizations that want to attract the talent that you're preparing with your organization. How do they prepare their organization, set the right kind of culture so they can attract this next generation of diverse students to come into their organizations and really make it a better organization, what are the most important steps to take in order to really create a healthy culture that will attract new talent? Huge question. Um, I'm still wrestling with the answers myself. What I can tell you right off the bat is you don't do it alone. I don't do it alone. I didn't build our culture. Culture is really something that collectively the organization, the team needs needs to hold and needs to you know, enforce and propagate and advocate for. And so I do think co-ops culture is, it's fire. It's, it's incredible. I'm always shocked that I get to be a part of a community that's so much cooler than I am. It's a really loving place 
with work to do, by the way, every, every community does. What I'll say is a little unique to co-op, but I think potentially there can be some broader lessons taken from it. You know, I, I shared how deeply alumni-driven our organization is. You know, at, at the moment, we have, I think, about 300 of our alumni serving as part-time employees in this coaching role I mentioned, uh, and a few other part-time roles. And, and then recently, my, my staff just surpassed 50 full-time, which is wild, and about 70 Thank you for, for better and worse. Uh, no, I, I'm so lucky, so lucky to work with this group of humans. And about 70% of our staff are also alumni of the program, you know, who, who went through it, who came back to be cohort captains a few times in that part-time role and then, and then joined the full-time team. So each of, of those members of our team, or truly every member of our team needs to be a, a culture carrier in some way. But the, the sort of this notion of alumni leadership, each of those individuals is someone who, who carries their own experience of co-op, carries the culture of what they experience, who carries the love that their captains and cohorts gave to them, and this desire to bring that to many, many more people. So I, I think the, the broader lesson here is, you know, and not every organization can be alumni-led, right? If you're if you're th- that that works in education and it works with in education with young adults right and you know if you're working with little kids it's going to take a lot longer for them to become your alumni if you're working in environmental stuff like you know it, you get it but i think no matter what you want to be thinking really intentionally about who are the members of your team who are who exhibit the culture that you want the whole team to exhibit and then how do you elevate them and how do you put a spotlight on them? How do you celebrate the, the aspects of that culture that are so important to you? I think it's really important to articulate those things clearly. So for years, our program has had these three program pillars, head, heart, and hustle. And that, that was sort of shorthand for our values. And, it, and then we're like, all right, that's, that's compelling, but we need to take one step further. Like, what does head, heart, and hustle mean to us? And so for each of those, we, we identified an organizational value. So head is uh, purpose and curiosity. Heart is community and empathy. And hustle is resourcefulness and optimism. And those are the six values that I, I think sum up our culture. And those are things that, that we talk about, that we try to celebrate. I think we could do that even more explicitly and work it into our performance management system more effectively, but just really have these live conversations at all times. And I think what's really important about organizational values is that they don't, you don't want them to describe the organization you want to be. They need to describe the organization you are, right? Like, and, and then each of them are aspirational, right? You can live those values more fully, but I, I think that's something I certainly wrestled with as, as a founder and leader is, and I think we'll maybe talk a bit more about this, just this idea of like how my, the good things and the bad things about how I show up, just, they just get integrated into the DNA of an organization and, and scaled, <laughs> whether you meant for that to happen or not. 
Well, this has been fascinating. Well, thank you so much for sharing your insights today. I think my listeners are going to want to try find out a little bit more about you and about co-op careers. And who knows, this could be a great opportunity to uh, hire some people that you are now helping to get through uh, that next step after college. Hiring, so, so that would be awesome. Would ah, be awesome. there we go. Okay, perfect. So yeah, how can people find out about you personally and then more about co-op careers? No one ever asked me the first one. They only asked the second one, which is, like <laughs> right, I said, see? the coolest thing they, about me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so co-op careers, please find us on, on online co-op careers, C-O-O-P careers.org, not coop, um, co-op careers.org. Uh, we're same name under on LinkedIn. Follow us. I'm on LinkedIn. I'd love to connect. And yeah, on our website and on LinkedIn, there's a bunch of sort of different articles we've written and different spotlights on our alumni. And um, I think that's a, a, a great way to, to start getting to know us. And Yep. And you'll find all the, the open jobs that we're hiring for right now. And if you're an employer who wants to hire a bunch of folks, like I said, we have an awesome partnerships team and, and we have a, a form online that, that you can connect with them really easily. So I've, yeah, I've got an amazing team and they're ready to talk to you. Well, your passion is very clear. It comes out uh, you know, just as you talk. And I love that. It's always a good sign of an executive director. Someone has a vision that's going to draw more people to what you're doing and to your vision. So way to go. Keep up the good work. And I encourage my listeners again to check out a little bit more about you as well as the co-op career. So thanks for spending time to share a bit more of the vision and your experience with co-op careers. Thanks so much, Rob. Hey, friends. Well, I wanted you to know that this podcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, Google Podcasts, and wherever you listen to other podcasts. I also want to encourage you to like, subscribe, and share this podcast with others. This will actually help us get this great content out to more nonprofit leaders just like you. You can also join the Nonprofit Leadership Podcast community, find other resources and interviews of past guests all on my website, nonprofitleadershippodcast.org. Well, thanks again for listening. And until next time, keep making your world better.